0: That time forgot
1: podcast with Ashling Hurley and Neve Quinn.
0: So, welcome to, back to the "People That Time Forgot" podcast with Ashling Hurley and Neve Quinn. Welcome to the center of the world, pretty, pretty high, <laughs> uh, Ireland, where obviously nothing else matters. So, yeah. the weather today is uh, ten degrees. And it's not raining, which is, you know, we're really happy about that. No. Uh, it's amazing that people outside Ireland love the rain and we're like, oh, thank God it's not raining today.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so it's a good day for the washing. It is yeah. It's a Monday, so we're very motivated and positive and all that. And Ashley arrived in with a fabulous daffodils. <laughs> yeah. And on the jar it says, giving peace and joy, love, live and laugh, happiness, sing and smile, grateful for all miracles. Tomorrow, it might not feel <laughs> that way, but we'll carry on Today, are in a good
0: place. Yeah, okay. So, uh, just again, what the podcast is about. So, uh, really cool people that were either written out of history or just not documented for whatever reason. Um, so, we're really trying to bring those stories to life. Some really, really cool people that, for whatever reason, are missing from history. Um, some of these stories make us quite angry and depressed, and enraged so if you're already enraged uh, just a warning it may enrage you even more although this one is a lovely one because who do we pick today for part 2? It's Meet the Nicholsons! Da, 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 yeah! Da, da, da. Meet um, the Nicholsons! So Leave, these were a super cool couple. They were? Yeah. I love actually they're so nice like really the best of what Hollywood can be when it wants to be. Um, so tell us a bit about them because you did most of the research for this one.
1: Oh, um, yes, uh, two couples they were very um, creative. Yeah. Um, shit, no, I'm just after losing my thoughts. Secret so we weapon. Where are we on the thing? <laughs> oh, wait, right, we're back yeah. down here. Right. So We did write a script.
0: And we're yeah. trying to stick to it. Yeah, we've got, obviously I don't have to right spread <laughs> out. <obviously. laughs> yeah. right. right.
1: Back to the knuckles. Yeah, back to... So, they're a secret weapon for many Hollywood producers, directors, writers, production designers. Hardwin was, was one of the most talented storyboard artists in Hollywood, creating images for everything from the Ten Commandments in 1956 to the Fly in 1986. Ick, what film. Yeah, amazing. He was also, oh, there we go, amazing. We yeah. say that a lot. He also began an accomplished two time academy also became an accomplished two time academy nominated production designer and art director on Star Trek, the Motion Picture, nineteen seventy nine. So he wasn't like a one trick pony, liked like was a trekkie. No. He actually I mean the Ten Commandments <laughs> is one trick Trekkie. Yeah, is way, way at the other spectrum of Star Trek, so he was super creative.
0: Yeah. Coming out of every orifice. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so his partner then was L- the lovely Lillian.
1: Yes, love, love this lady. In Hollywood, marriages don't seem to last very long. Our problems in raising a family affected our marriage greatly. The fact that our marriage lasted sixty years is a big surprise.
0: So Lillian is so interesting as well because she was one of the most talented and sought-after film researchers in Hollywood for decades. Um, so she would have provided the references for the designs for The Birds, Alfred Hitchcock's films. Brilliant. Rosemary's Baby in 1968,
1: wasn't that me
0: if Yeah. Know? Yep. yeah. Uh, fiddler on the Roof, the original... Was 19- fiddler. <laughs> yeah, 1971, you know, the guy who played the violin. Yeah. Whatever. Chinatown, 1974. Yep. Was that Jack Nicholson?
1: um i think 1974 yeah well
0: (laughs) (laughs) we all know who rocky did rocky yeah yeah sylvester stallone 1976 sorry lillian did i couldn't believe this because when you hear her speaking which you will in in the podcast um she also did the research for full metal jacket 1987 and that was like a really really serious film war film you wouldn't associate her character with it, but so oh, her exactly her not. she's very
1: soft, yeah. Yeah, um, But research is research.
0: Yeah, and the Cotton Club. Um, so both of these amazing people worked with Alfred Hitchcock, Steven Spielberg, Mel Brooks, Stanley Krubrick, Ruben Polanski, and many more. I mean, it's just amazing the people that they worked with, how talented they were. Um, but why we really love them is that they were such nice, decent people.
1: But the thing is, and why a lot of people probably don't know about them, although they probably know a little bit more about them since Netflix did a documentary on them in a couple of months ago, is that um, they worked away happily out behind the scenes. Everyone was getting their credit, shall we say, directors yeah. and the like. And it didn't bother them. No.
0: Um, I mean, how did these guys do? They were married for 60 years. That's like such a long time, 60 years. And... I, I don't know, we were discussing this before we came on. Um, they both were so supportive of each other, but I'd yeah. say it was rare enough for the times that Lillian got to do what she loved to do as well. Yeah. And then Harold was this like amazing support to her.
1: Yeah, because she didn't actually get into doing the research. Like, they had three kids, but she was at home rearing mm-hmm. the kids, you know, for a good 10, 15 years before she actually got in. And she just... She felt like she wanted to do something and went in um, in a paylist job into the research library in Hollywood and the rest I say is history.
0: Yeah, and actually um, the two of them are so talented. One of their kids is actually incredibly talented, uh, Dennis Mickelson, and he's a visual art effects editor and his work includes Mission Impossible, one of my favourite franchises, Love It, The Saint and Die Hard, so like amazing talent in this family. Um, the other thing, which was probably um, unusual for Hollywood, their oldest child was diagnosed with autism at a time when no one really knew what it was. And, you know, they still managed to keep a marriage together, keep a family together and be quite happy. Um, living in, you know, Hollywood is quite fake. So I think just keeping it real was yeah. amazing, wasn't
1: it? Well, they totally respected each other and their careers. yeah. Um,
0: I wonder, is that the secret? You could do what you love to do every day. Are you happier? You're happier, probably. For sure. Yeah. Um, I'm funny, because, again, when you hear her
1: talking, such a lovely lady, and um, Harold's old mum wasn't impressed with her. I know. I think she was a little bit younger than him. Yeah. Um, I wonder were there many rows in that house at the dinner table.
0: Like, where are you going? I think because she had... I think the problem was because she had um, a hard background, so she was brought up in orphanages or whatever, another oh. reason we love her. Yeah. Um, she really created her own reality um, from that point of view, like she did what she loved to do or whatever. Um, but I think his mum felt that, you know, she wasn't good enough, which is But she's yeah. actually quite open about saying that.
1: Yeah. But Horrific. the amazing thing about Harold is he did propose to Lillian. And she kind of held off a little and he was saying i'm going to marry you even though his mum was still saying i don't want this to happen Mm. and it was a good for a couple of years down the road before they did ever get married but her was so in love with lillian and as we see from recordings she's fabulous lady yeah
0: so gorgeous um So anyway, as we mentioned, Lily uh, was one of the first Hollywood archivists and librarians in Samuel Golden Studios. Uh, So she learned her craft under Lilia Alexander, who was the lady she went to volunteer with when she uh, first went to work in the library. Um, And the library now, the Lillian Mickelson Library, has 7,000 books, 100,000 periodicals and over a million Mm -hmm. clippings. From a reference point of view, it's the largest private motion picture library in Hollywood. Well, Should we pause that? Just, just been a massive knock on the door.
1: I'm sure you can edit it out.
0: Okay. <sighs> so I think I'm gonna have to go get the door.
1: <sighs> okay. Let's just edit that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, where were we? So. So this amazing library.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. So I think in yeah, just start where work worked uh, actually in in the studio, and um, so eventually she was so good at her job, she became the go-to person for any and all questions. But again, um, even though she's amazing at her job, she's actually only credited in seven on-screen research credits, which is ha- really hard to Fair believe, it. isn't it? Mm. And um, I think she's great attitude to this. So in her opinion. She, when she's talking about it, she says, research is lost in the mist of memory. We're the first ones who are asked to do anything on a picture when it's really in utero, so to speak. And there are so many fits and starts in getting any project off the ground. In fact, to me, it's a miracle that any movie is ever made. That by the time the completion comes around, we're totally lost from view. It just seems that we do rather a useful thing and we should be remembered. And that's one of the reasons we're doing the podcast. Yes. Yeah. They definitely should be remembered for the amount of work that she's done. Um... But also, Harold's storyboarding was often uncredited too, which is another story.
1: Mm. And the amazing thing about Harold, he was a great um, artist. Yeah, amazing. And illustrator. Mm-hmm. And um, when he started out, um, he went to Hollywood first, and Lillian was to follow. But he went around to all the studios with his portfolio. And. Um, Handed in drawings as a sample to show, you know, if they needed anyone, that they might give him a call. Yeah, as and you. It, yeah. And uh, in one of his recordings, he says that he went around to all the studios with his drawings, and next thing um, later that day, he got a phone call from one of the directors and said, "I like these drawings you handed in. Um, can you start here Monday?" And he says, "Yes, of course." But when he arrived, he realised they weren't his drawings at all. Um, but he it's said nothing. Light. Yeah, but he said <laughs> nothing because he needed a break.
0: Yeah, God. Um, so I suppose you, you
1: create your own look, but sure. The other yeah, guy probably it. got his. You know, he probably turned, Well, no, he probably got a job. <laughs> it probably was the next Monday. <laughs> God. I brought my stuff around to all the different studios, But one day I get a call: "Are you the guy who did these drawings?" And I said, yes. And he says, can you come to work Monday? I said, yes. Well, I never did those drawings. Whoever did those drawings now may be selling insurance. Gosh, that's
0: amazing. Um, I don't know. I wouldn't be able to do that. I th- I'd find it hard to do that. I think brilliant that he did it. Um, well, I suppose
1: it probably was Desperate Times. I think he was yeah. saying they'd know, he'd no money. Yeah. But, I like, mean, it's if, amazing, if but... that guy was really good, he would have gotten his break. And uh, I know, yeah, it wouldn't be a nice thing. Yeah, um, it's opportunity, I suppose, isn't it? Be ready it. for the yeah.
0: for the thing when it comes. But Tarik
1: would have definitely gotten his break anyway. It's
0: oh yeah, he's so talented, just um, really, really talented. Um. So again, the reason apparently that a lot of storyboards um, don't get credit or hadn't got credit was because, like, the research. It also happens at the beginning of the film. Um, because really you're creating a concept as to how that film will be shot. Um, One of the well-known production designers, actually Jim Bessel, says that it's an awkward position because you're working on the highest level of the film, yet you're also below the line, so you're not one of the key players as far as everybody else is concerned. However, you're working directly with the producer, and we know that Harold, as we mentioned, worked directly with Stanley Kubrick and Alfred Hitchcock and was... Um, hauled over on um, uh, set to work for Alfred Hitchcock, actually mm. and the birds to figure out that famous scene um, where all the birds appear. Yeah, outside the house actually, I think wasn't
1: it? We know ourselves from the work that we do. Preparation is key. So yeah, going out filming on set and casting and crew and it costs a lot of money and actually having it all planned out beforehand means that it's quicker and less
0: cost us yeah. money yeah and he was so good at that because apparently he saved um the studios a fortune you know he the attitude was how can we make it better but that it doesn't cost it was always the most cost-effective solution which is why they loved him yeah yeah and then his attitude as well i think was um you know he'd say okay we give the producer so many um solutions yeah. or variations of the drawings and then they're the ones that choose they're the ones that put the story together so as far as he was concerned it was their story not his story Yeah. but um, I think he underplays it a bit there but
1: definitely but I think the joy he got out of was the drawing and the creating and after yeah. that then you know he didn't need someone to be patting him on the back or and I suppose that's the beauty of both of them yeah is that they were happy out doing their jobs and they didn't need to feed their egos And that's very rare too, yeah.
0: Yeah, very rare, yeah. Um,
1: So eventually,
0: anyway, back to um, Lillian, how the library became hers. So in 1969, the library was facing eviction, and Lillian told Lillian that she felt the library should be hers. So you think, okay, how nice. But of course, she had to go the money then together to buy it. Uh, So like a true entrepreneur, I love this story. Uh, She borrowed the money in Harold's life insurance to buy the library and he told her to go ahead first can you imagine yeah. saying that to your partner listen I'm just gonna take some money out of here and your life insurance
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> but I think they both both knew how important it was not only to the industry yeah but to every you know to people watching films or how the films are created because you know yourself if you're watching a period of drama she we say, saying they all walk up in leathers like I mean it just doesn't yeah it's something wrong there yeah it's like Victorian wait on a second leathers. now don't think they went to Lily. where's my whip
0: yeah <laughs> Um, Go forth and whip. Yeah. So um, then she moved the library to <clears throat> AFI, and in 1980 she meets a man called Francis Ford Coppola. Legend. Yeah, Godfather, etc. And he's so impressed that he makes the library the center of his setup at Zotrop Studios.
1: I mean. Well, he was obviously the first one that, well, not probably the first one that could see it, but I mean, the first one to totally capitalize on it. I mean, they were probably all going in using her facilities for nothing yeah. you know as in like
0: yeah didn't you say alfred hitchcock uh could turn up there and yeah
1: she was saying um as i said in the netflix documentary and um, she's been interviewed and she does say it became the norm they come in and they have a cup of tea and they might chat about right we're doing a movie about this that and the other and she go oh yeah go down to aisle five <laughs> you know climb the ladder to I shelf ten
0: yeah can you imagine having an office that's so cool as Hitchcock's Titchcock's walking around it? I mean, just crazy. Um, Definitely the coolest do. job ever. So she had to research things, like, you know, keeping it real. So one of the things she loved doing, because she had been raised in an orphanage, um, she didn't really know much about her Jewish faith, and she was saying that um, on the job, the film Fiddler on the Roof, that's actually how she came to understand the heritage um so one of the things she had to research was what underwear Taya Te- is it Tevier's daughter, Tevier I think is the name, should wear. Um because there's a particular scene in it where all the girls fall back on the bed and you can see their underwear. And of course nobody had been filming underwear or taking photographs of underwear yeah. in the eighteen nineties or the period in which it was set. Um so she had to go and actually research that. So she did go to the Jewish Library, she was saying, and picked up a book about it. Um which did describe living in a shackle at that time, at the turn of the century. Um, but, you know, there, there was nothing, obviously, about the underwear or whatever. Actually, that'd be kind of creepy if there was something about girls' underwear in a man's alberghapy, wouldn't it? Mm. It'd be a bit weird. Um, <laughs> so anyway, she was wondering what she's going to do. So she went to sit on the bench at Fairfax and Beverly, which is a Jewish section of Los Angeles, and she sits there. And then these little ladies' um, are sitting beside her and she started talking about this and that and getting pictures for a certain project but she didn't mention the film and she talks about you know does anybody remember what you wore in those days and she was saying they got so excited about helping her then and one little lowly ran back to her apartment well as fast as a little low lady could run <laughs> and um she cut out a pattern for her because she was saying during that time they had to make They all had to make their own underwear. Mm. Um, And that is the story of how they got the underwear correct for Fiddler on the Roof, but that's the level of research that she did. That's great. Yeah. And then I thought she was so funny. She was doing research as well for the Scarface film, Pacino. Um, And she (laughs) was willing... Yeah, she was willing to fly on um, a private jet belonging to a drug dealer to go and research that to get the whole thing right for the film. Mm. And, of course, when she told Harold, she was like, what? You know, what are you doing? And she was, Harold, she was like, well, why not? Um,
1: this was for the movie Scarface. and so I go home all excited. And I say, Harold, I'm going to Bolivia or Ecuador. He says, what? Are you going to go alone to South America in a drug king's airplane? And I said, why not? Um, I mean, just so brave. Yeah. Just so brave. I and mean, she was caref- They were so carefree, and I suppose that's what made them, you know, oh, yeah. such lovable characters. There was no fear. Yeah. You know, they and they respected um, everybody.
0: Just so calm. They're like the king and queen of Hollywood, aren't they? So what else? So the library became so good because even when they were making the film about the Cotton Club, her library had information on the original Cotton Club, which is going back to the nineteen thirties. And she was saying somebody had loved the New York nightclubs, went and photographed everything in the cotton club. And when she went to the folder in the library, uh, she had all these amazing photographs. No no person in them because they were taken for research purposes. But everything had a measuring stick so that they knew exactly the size of all the props, etc. Every detail that you could think of. Imagine having that as a resource. Wow, that's just amazing. Isn't it? Like Harlem in the 30s. Um so Library eventually moved from there to Paramount and then on to DreamWorks Animation Studios. So they're the guys that make Shrek and cars, etc., all the fabulous uh, films. Um and you may not be aware, actually, it's Cyber. King Harold and Queen Lillian in Shrek are based on the real Harold and Lillian. I know it's I fabulous,
1: that isn't it? Story. That is just so good. It's a nice nod, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it really is. And when you know we see the film first, you're kinda of wondering, Oh, they're unusual names without mm. knowing what the story yeah, yeah. was. <laughs> You, yes I love it we visited the birds when Alfred Hitchcock asked him to go in 1962 um, they had to go to Badiga Bay um, he's just so like understated about the whole thing and he, you know his attitude towards that was that he learned a great deal from the master of suspense about how to tell stories visually and took away a valuable lesson when one of the sequences was rejected for being an anti-climax. Can you imagine that? Yeah. That's hard to take, is Because yeah. he put so much work into those illustrations. Ooh, that's not good enough. Yeah.
1: It's
0: not climactic. Um, however, he had other ideas for enhancing the script, so he went away and did that. And um, Hitchcock ended up accepting many of his ideas and sequences, and the art director... Norm Newbury noted, each of Harold's frames told us exactly what we were going to see with which lens and what angle the camera should be pointed. Um, And he then worked very closely with Hitchcock's cinematographer, Robert Burks, and the production designer, Robert Boyle. So they'd meet up every night in Bob Burks' hotel room to talk about the next day's work. Um, Bob Burks set up almost every shot in The Birds, according to Harold's storyboards. So you would wonder, you know, uh, should the film be a film by Howard Mickelson not Alfred yeah. Hitchcock but didn't get any credit for the birds actually
1: amazing to do so much work and well you see I suppose it's like um, it's like the saying it takes a village to raise a child I mean it doesn't take one person doesn't like when the Oscar goes to yeah. you know the director Yeah, I mean there's a hundred people that created help him create it and I know he's gone up accepting it for yeah, the majority of them go up and they're thanking their mother, or father, you know,
0: and my great aunt Marnie.
1: Yeah, <laughs> but you know, it should be literally like someone going up accepting it. Uh, for you know the, all the cast, the crew, the, I yeah. mean, the music, the music can be just as important as the. You know, all the elements need to come exactly. together. Yeah, for a, a movie to be.
0: Um. The, uh, his other big break, previous to this, actually, he had done um, the storyboards for Cecil B. DeMille's 1956 biblical epic, The Ten Commandments, and when you see the drawings now, they are actually all the main um, yeah. shots.
1: All the iconic shots, yeah. Yeah,
0: all the, I mean, how to take them from his brain, sketch them out, uh, convince the director or whatever, yeah, this is what's going to work. And yeah, the next you go and actually going to do it. It's amazing. Isn't yeah, it? like no, for sure. Really
1: because as a director, you know yourself, and when we're in the creative minds, that you can have one view, and then the next person has a completely different view. You might be not yeah. on the same page. Never even thought of that. It seems to be that he actually knew. It's like he probably sat down with the director, got a feel of what they were about, and then was able to convey. Because as we said, the Ten Commandments is a far stretch from Star Trek. Yeah. So like to be coming up with visual concepts for two completely different films. films. Periods. Yeah. Yeah, all the things that are involved.
0: Um, So Harold had to do the drawings for this um, on demand actually and then apparently they got passed through a series of go-betweens and eventually went into the hands of DeMille on set who thought this was awful insisted on not having any direct contact with Harold, the guy who was designing his um, key images. And this collaboration was kept really on the down low as if the storyboards were DeMille's cheat sheet or, you know, a bit of a shameful secret. Um, I don't, you know, I think it's it's great you have this guy who can help you. But that's it. it.
1: I think that's a person then that wants to be standing up there and saying, look at what yeah. I did. Yeah. But it's, it can't be, one person can't create a whole movie. It no. T- it's a... One person does not a movie make. There's not an I T. Yeah. <laughs> yes, love it. Um... Then the
0: one which is kind of funny and cool at the same time is Mrs. Robinson in The Graduate.
1: Who played her? Was it on Halfway? No. <laughs> so she was in a... Drop <laughs> that would have been a good one. Uh, and Margaret? No. Who was it? down the alphabet. And Bancroft. This is Dustin Hoffman and... And Bancroft. Mm-hmm.
0: Um. So, of course, Dustin Hoffman is this young student who's about to be seduced by Mrs. Robinson. My husband will be back quite late. He should be gone for several hours. Oh, my God.
1: Pardon?
0: Oh, no, Mrs. Robinson, oh, no.
1: What's wrong?
0: Mrs. Robinson, you didn't... I mean, you didn't expect... What? I mean, you didn't really think I'd do something like that. (laughs) Like what? What do you think? (laughs) Well, I don't know. For God's sake mrs Robinson, here we are you got me into your house you give me a drink you put on music
1: now you start opening up your personal life to me and tell me your husband won't be home for hours so mrs robinson you're trying to seduce me aren't you
0: probably the original cougar we reckon in film yeah i don't know if that had been done before actually maybe that was probably, the probably first not time mainstream a
1: cougar was done yeah but maybe in Boom movies, a couple of years history.
0: ago, in was it the James Bond film? Uh, was it Skyfall, or was it the last film
1: where they had a
0: fifty-one-year-old actress who's fabulous, and everybody was talking about it, that she'd been the oldest Bond girl ever. So, like even as recently as that, it's unusual to have an older woman playing like a sex kitten or oh, whatever. Yeah. Um, so anyway, you know, the, the uh, thing about this was. Um, how to get some excitement into the shot and I think he had spent a lot of time thinking about this and you know do we just move from Dustin Hoffman to Anne Bancroft or you know how boring is that for the scene and um, so he came up with this brilliant idea um, of showing her leg as a sort of triangle and then Dustin Hoffman is seen through the triangle and um, we were just saying, even to see it now it's you know, something risque is going well, on. yeah, but I
1: suppose it was very cleverly done to show, rather than just showing Ancro- Bancroft in the nude, it was showing suggestive shots really well. Yeah. So that they never had to.
0: <laughs> I'm just thinking this is like second podcast we've talked about
1: people being <laughs> in the nude. Yeah.
0: <laughs> There's a bit of a theme here.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, so, like, it is a cinematic Masterpiece, it's amazing. It wasn't. And at the time it was um like a huge it was the number one box off hit. Um Dustin Hoffman was stud of the time, you know, the Imagine. the number one never boy, yeah. Poster boy. Poster boy, yeah. Yeah. Um
0: you just wonder how many, you know, poses did Lillian have to do to get that right. And she's such a great sense of humour. She said yeah, he was always a leg man <laughs> for that scene, which I thought was so cool. Um he felt it worked anyway because he got the feeling immediately of a sexual escapade, which you do even looking out now you definitely get it um mm. there was just an amazing amazing couple that worked together for years and lots of films and didn't fall out um unfortunately then harold died in 2007 with dementia um so he was a resident in the motion picture and television country house which is actually where lillian now resides So she's still with us, still an amazing character Um, and still a great, just brilliant attitude to life and such a positive person. It's just amazing. So definitely check out the film about um, Harold and Lillian Nicholson, a love story, a Hollywood love story, which is available on Netflix. Um, So that's the amazing story of Harold and Lillian. Tata for now or hashtag TTFN. D-D-F-N. And if it, just do it, hashtag FIJDI. The People That Time Forgot podcast with Ashling Hurley Amp, Neve Quinn.